Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are bringing you preaching and teaching insights into the first reading for Sunday, June 27th, 2021, which is Lamentations 3, 22 to 33. And folks, we are glad you're here, uh, even more than usual, because this week we've got a really great uh, guest expert for you today. We sure do. Dr. Kathleen O'Connor is the William Marcellus McFeeters Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. She's widely known for her work studying trauma and disaster in the Bible, as well as present-day intercultural and ecumenical issues for biblical studies. Columbia has named an annual lectureship in her honor. Her other focus is on the role of the church in today's world, including issues such as hunger, pastoral, contextual awareness, and biblical resources for Christ's mission. We highly recommend her Lamentations and Jeremiah Commentaries, which have both become go-to resources for many, many scholars and pastors, and we'll put links to both of those on our website. Uh, Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you both to talk about a very sad topic, Lamentations, (laughs) and its only piece of hopefulness. Right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, we'll get to that in a couple of minutes about why that ends up here. But so one of the things we like to ask when we start out is just, how did you end up in this wonky little field of study? What drew you to Hebrew Bible and, and why did you stick with it? Yeah, well, um, when, when I was young, I was a Dominican sister in the Catholic Church and um, I was invited to go on to graduate school. And the only thing I liked that we were studying in the, that I really liked, that I was passionate and interested about was the, um, was the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And um, it was a time in Catholic tradition in which the uh, return to the Bible was really a driving force for lots of reform. And um, that's really what drew me into biblical studies to start with, this sort of sense that there's a resource here for my church and the world that uh, just ignited me. I left the order, but I found my vocation. And you've had a wonderful career producing all sorts of scholarship that's been so useful to so many of us. At this point, do you feel like there's something that you still have been wanting to get to in your own research that you that you haven't had a chance to really wrap your yeah. fingers around? Yeah, I, I've, done, I've done a little work in Job, but when I was doing the work, I didn't really have trauma theory uh, mm-hmm. as part of my, uh, my lenses, trauma and disaster, I always want to say. And I think there's, you know, people are now talking about Job in terms of trauma, but I think there's so much there that remains uh, a, a, an appealing topic for me. Well, that's great. Let's uh, let's dive in. Uh, would you please read the text for the day for I us? I certainly will. I'm going to cheat, though, by going back just a little bit, oh, by wonderful. looking at verse 21. Oh, we don't allow that here. We love oh. that. <laughs> We love that. Okay. Some of our favorite the sensors are at work. <laughs> um, okay, but it, 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 the speaker says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So the hope is the hope that this next verses are going to show us arise from a remembrance of tradition, a remembrance of catechism or something. Okay, here it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him, in God. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. Really, how is that good? For the Lord will not reject forever, although God causes grief, God will have compassion according to the abundance of God's steadfast love. For God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I mean, that is, it is a beautiful text and very well read. But as we've already sort of hinted at, this section's a bit different from the rest of the book of Lamentations. We often situate these passages historically, but I think it's going to be more essential than ever for us to do that with this text. What can we say about the historical context of the book yeah. of Lamentations? Do we know anything yeah. about when it was written or who wrote it? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> okay, the, the, the key uh, factor in reading this book is recognizing that the world has completely collapsed for the people of Judah that most scholars will agree happily or with a great accord that the text falls after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian invaders and oppressors, and that it is particularly focused on the city of Jerusalem and its destruction, uh, which was mighty and horrible and ugly. Um, just to mention a few aspects of it, there were three invasions the wall the city walls were broken down and it, and uh, the army invaded the city deported many of the nobility killed uh, some of the royal family and then displaced people burned the temple to the ground and really destroyed the economic cultural life of the city so that the community of Judah the people of Israel um, and the city of Jerusalem are virtually destroyed. Even if they're not totally destroyed, the disruption is a decimation mm -hmm. of the populace and of ordinary life. So, I mean, maybe to suggest thinking about Syria today is overstating it, but maybe not for the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So it's this, we believe, that produced this literature. Mm -hmm. Now, the tradition is to assign this book to the prophet Jeremiah. He's considered the traditional author. Mm. It seems unlikely in that the prophetic book of Jeremiah has so many differences from this book. Mm. And, and I believe actually that the book of Jeremiah is closer in time to the actual destruction mm. of the nation, precisely because of the very, um, very careful artistic shaping of grief mm. that shows up in this book. And we'll, we'll probably talk about this, that it's acrostic, it's obviously liturgical, it's obviously filled with pain and terror and horror, and yet it gathers that experience mm. into 
really unique literature. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think this, this is not an on-the-spot report. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. not an historical account. It's a symbolization mm-hmm. through many voices of these experiences. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's kind of a, it's an experience, a, a traumatic experience that has been processed through, through time and reflection into yes. an artistic form. Yeah. Right. And let me argue. Let me at least assert that I don't think that the nation is being rebuilt yet. Mm. I think it's. It, I think it's close enough in time to the catastrophe because there's so much despair or near despair. Mm. Um, and searching for survival that I think is the the key component of the material. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is maybe kind of an exercise in insanity, but if you could, you know, if you were to describe the Book of Lamentations in like five words or less, what, what would you say or how would you do yeah. it? Yeah. Well, okay. You gave me that question ahead of time. So I actually thought about it. Oh, no. It's really hard to get down to five. Um, I think it's a book that honors human suffering. Wow. What drew you to the term honors? Okay, this is complicated, but there are five poems. They have many things in common. Well, they don't have a lot. They have, they have suffering in common. Mm-hmm. The fact that of the five poems involve four, what I call four separate uh, poetic speakers. Mm-hmm. There's the city itself personified as daughter's eye on a female voice. There is a narrator who talks to her and about her. There is this speaker in chapter three, whom I call the strong man or the captured soldier because of the Hebrew word geber, which is not ish, just a man. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a man who's charged with protecting women, children, city. So it's like a, it's like a warrior man. In, in some, you, you can do that anyway. You can just say man, but yeah, I don't. Yeah. I say, no, dramatic. This, and then you go on and you describe, you see in it that this speaker who gives us the only hope in the book is being tortured. Mm-hmm. He seems to be imprisoned. And above all, he seems to be abandoned by God. He's being attacked by enemies. And you see that this is a chaotic, overwhelming description of horror, terror, torture, and lostness. It's Mm. overwhelming. Okay, so he speaks, and then a community responds to him or talks with him, and then the community ends the book. So all four of those speakers want one thing. They want to be seen. They want a witness in their suffering. Mm. All of them are articulating their horrible pain. But above all, they all want God to see them and speak to them. And God never shows up in the book. Hmm. Wow. So I determined that that's a literary theological decision. I determined that the I like to use the language. The, the book is like a house of suffering. It's where the voices of the suffering are seen. They don't get a witness from God but they get a witness in the book itself. Yeah. And and it's almost you I I'm 
fascinated by this this idea that God never shows up. It's almost, you could think about that almost in two ways. One, that it's highlighting the absence of the deity, or it's highlighting the deity's willingness to let these voices take center stage and just be I think seen. it's both, yeah. Rachel. I think that's beautiful, and I think it's both. And I think the I like to think I can get insight into the ex- human experiences underlying the text. Mm-hmm. And if I do that, I'll go exactly where you just went. I think it is anybody who's had a, just a terrible tragedy in their life or in their community, they know that complete devastation that it is and the seeking for seeking for something to help them survive. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it is an experience of divine absence. And if, if both of you, I think, you, uh, think Tim told me both of you have had pastoral experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who've had horrible losses. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the theological question is not long and coming. Where was God? Mm-hmm. Where was the one? And so if we take the community of Judah, Israel, they're the ones who can say, well, God promised to dwell forever in Jerusalem, in the temple with us. God promised that David would be on the throne or his offspring forever. Well, the king is gone. And everything that God promised about protection, it's collapsed. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a world of collapsed meaning. And mm-hmm. that's got to, above all, theologically include the absence of God. Yeah. So, and that's honored, in my opinion, in this book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then we can just add the ending is like the is the final punctuation point. The ending is, why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Yeah. You know, and the Jewish community, you may already know this, when they read this for Tisha B'Av, the, the day commemorating the liturgical commemoration of the Holocaust, the Shoah, they read the last verse and then they go back to restore us to yourselves, O Lord, because mm. in their liturgical practice, they don't want to end on that note of utter rejection. Yeah. But the text, <laughs> if we stick with the text, it's pretty despairing. And it, and it puts the ball in God's court. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Yeah, completely. Mm. I want to circle back to a thing you mentioned, Kathleen. You mentioned that this um, that this is an acrostic poem, and it might be helpful to explain that right. for our listeners and kind of how that shows up in this book. Super. Now, by acrostic, we mean an alphabetic organization in which each verse of or stanza or line. Um, begins with the next letter of the alphabet. So A, B, C, all the way down to Z, although, mm-hmm. of course, it's Hebrew alphabet, Gimadali, <laughs> et cetera. So, um, so that happens. The first two, the first three, okay, this is, gets really technical, but the first three <laughs> chapters have 66 lines. And that with each line, we have a new letter of the alphabet in each of three poems that are put together. The one we're looking at, though, intensifies the alphabetical arrangement so that not only each verse, but each line. So there's three A's, three B's, three C's, all the way down to Tau, the very last thing. So we can say that this is not poetry you write off the cuff. Mm. We can say that the, the, the acrostic nature gets very intensified in this center poem. 
And then we can add to this that in the ancient world of literature, it isn't necessary to follow to a happy ending. It isn't necessary to go in narrative order. Sometimes in the literary arrangements, the center is where the heart of the matter lies. Mm -hmm. And you can make that claim here. Now, I argue against that because I really want to push the sadness of this book and the grief of this book so you can be suspicious of me. But I do, um, if you look at chapters four and five, the alphabet begins to disappear Mm. and you end up having 22 verses in each and 22 is the number of alphabetic letters there are. Right but they're not in alphabetical order anymore. It's as if you run out of steam. You just really lay it out there. And now, oh, we're going to sink into grief, loss, doubt, and near despair. So in some ways, it almost mirrors what is often called the the process of grief, which is that it's not as a linear thing. It's something that's more either cyclical or roller coaster-y, to get a very technical term out there. <laughs> it does do that. And I think chapter three, the, the subject of our current discussion, does that particularly where the strong man is a, a really... I keep thinking of the word despairing character. He's depressed. He's clinically depressed, if you can say that. But despair is the theological term, I think, for it rather than I don't, I'm not a psychologist, though. I pretend I'm, I pretend I am. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the despair of this man uh, seems to disappear in the text we're, we're reading. And then it comes back. Yeah. And in my analysis of the chapter, I call it a flip-flopping chapter. Mm. Very sad. Maybe there's hope. Very sad. Oh, maybe there's hope. And it, it goes back and forth. And I think you're exactly right, Rachel, that this is the process. It, it is an expression of some of the processes of recovery. Mm. Mm, nice. And, um, and because uh, anybody who's experienced uh, really deep loss... You don't get over it. Yeah. You, you roll back into it. You get out of it for a little while. You roll back into it. Grief of any kind is kind of like that for many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you lose, even you lose your dog, you're sad. Yeah. I don't have a dog, so I don't really know. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, um, and, and so one of, one of my favorite pieces about your work, too, is your, your explanation of why you think such grief is given such a formal poetic structure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think uh, I get this from my colleague Walter Brueggemann, really, um, who talks about the formfulness of grief. One of the beauties of the book for me is that it gives shape, it gives very particular literary shape to that which is shapeless, Mm -hmm. to that which is nameless, that which is beyond words, Mm -hmm. that which we can't. We, we just, we can't fully express. And yet, using trauma theory here, you, it seems evident that for people to survive and then to flourish, it's necessary in one fashion or another to re-enter the experiences mm-hmm. of suffering. But if you do it directly, it can re-traumatize the individual or the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can do it here by 
having a poetic figure like Daughter Zion, the widow on the hill. You can have the strong man who's experiencing the worst possible thing, almost like a horror show, but it isn't you. It's it's this literary figure. Mm-hmm. So my speculation is this is this is a, a while, this is decades after the event, perhaps, perhaps, where these poems are put together to help continue the process of seeing what happened. Yeah. Because trauma and collective trauma takes away our capacity to take in, take it in. It just overwhelms the body, the spirit, Mm -hmm. the mind. And so recovery, PTSD helps us know this too. Recovery requires some experience little by little. And then ultimately it requires a new narrative. Mm. It needs a, a new narrative that can gather in yeah. the suffering in a broader way it doesn't it doesn't displace it but it has these amazing resources of the lament form mm-hmm. yeah and so the the form kind of gives them a way to start talking to start processing and reshaping their experience i i have a a friend who's a poet and uh, just a, about a week ago i saw this on facebook she had written uh, sestina about the pandemic. And a sestina is like a very highly structured um, English poetic form. And I asked her about that because I thought, well, first of all, it's just impressive when anybody writes a sestina. But like one about kind of the experiences of this past year was really impressive. And her response to me, she said, form forces one down new roads Mm, and it leads the writer and the reader on new adventures wow oh wow and i thought i thought there was wisdom in that and it it reminded me of lamentations as a as a way a formal structure can get you going into a process that can be you know toward toward healing even if the 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 content that fills the form is itself Mm -hmm. chaotic and traumatic Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm I love Mm -hmm. that. Exactly. Uh, And I think, I mean, I think if you're preaching this too, and I think what's, what's bubbling up very naturally here is of course the pandemic of the last year. But what I love about this discussion of form is in thinking of preaching this two directions you can take is you can take one, what uh, Tim's friend said, form forces one down new roads, which is, is beautiful. Um, Or this idea that that form you know, if you're thinking of trauma as this vastly overwhelming thing, form almost contains that which cannot be contained. So it's this exactly. this this mm-hmm. this regrafting and integrating that which cannot be integrated, and then pushing one in a new direction. Well, and then and if you add to the, this particular text that it's we believe it's liturgical, mm-hmm. you're doing it together in a community out loud, maybe with a leader, maybe not with a leader, but you're reading it. You're maybe you're maybe you're performing it in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we probably should talk about oh, the text. 322 to 33. <laughs> but, you know, well, if I can take us on one more little mini tangent, it would be uh, the relationship between this portion, which is the most sort of hopeful sounding section with the with the rest of the book, which is, you know, more or less a downer. We were both wondering what you, Kathleen, think about preachers who are picking up this text yeah. and how they might avoid the pitfall of 
a preaching, ending up preaching a really cheery sermon mm-hmm. out of the right. cheery section in this not so cheery book. Right. What, what right. advice would you have? Well, uh, l- let me start by saying I, I, I want to affirm what you're observing in the um, l- lectionaries. There's real attention to happy, praising, hooray, the world um, language, and very little to the um, the deep suffering that even when we're not in COVID exists mm-hmm. in religious communities. Mm-hmm. So that's the first mm-hmm. thing. And so we're being steered in the wrong direction, maybe by our cultural biases for happy endings mm-hmm. and good good news and denial mm-hmm. of pain. This this. This book denies denial until you get here. And I actually (laughs) think it's probably the perfect text for right now at the end of COVID. Because most of us, are we not beginning to think, oh, yes, maybe, maybe it's going to change a little. Maybe so much has come out. Maybe there's been so much suffering, racial difficulties, deaths, sicknesses, closing down of the economy. Maybe it's changing now. And so maybe we're exactly in the place of this speaker mm. who is talking to himself, mm. trying, in my opinion, tr- and I'll tell you why I think that from the text, talking to himself, trying to convince himself that he can have hope. Huh. Shall, shall I try to show you where I see that? Yes, please. Yes, yes. Okay, look at verse 24. Well, we have to do 22 and 23, but let's go to 24. <laughs> the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Huh. So, okay, I already see in this a a person who's having a conversation within himself. There's a conflict going on. I don't really think there's any hope here, but my soul tells me, therefore, I will have hope in the Lord who is my portion. Mm. I think that, that it's, one sign that he's trying to talk himself into happiness and into, or at least into hope of survival, perhaps at the various lowest mm-hmm. level. I love the way that you bring out that, that sense of talking to oneself with that language of um, nephesh, which is one of Rachel's favorite Hebrew words. Mm-hmm. The, but it's sort of like an alter ego there, right? My, my nephesh is the, the me that I talk to when I'm talking to myself. <laughs> right, Exactly. My nephesh, my, my sense of self, my soul, my body, my whole being seems to be at war with what I'm experiencing. Yeah. So I'm talking mm-hmm. myself into it. Well, and you could even take it, if you take the very literal meaning of nephesh as kind of throat, it can almost be like, I say the words out loud, and as I say them out loud, I convince myself of it, right? Oh, good. So here's here's this, uh, this let's say he's the tortured, captured soldier, mm-hmm. and there's no, there's no, there's no exit here mm-hmm. for him. And... So now what he does is call upon his resources. The reason for education, religious education. Yes. It's not for right now. It's for later yes. when, you're, when you're in torture <laughs> situations. So, of course, you've pointed out already in, in your notes to me um, the language of verse 22. Um, mm-hmm. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So the chesed mm-hmm. of the Lord. The yes. chesed, that untranslatable word yeah. that we translate as <laughs> if mercy, kindness, blah, blah, blah. But there, it's too nuanced to be able to name uh, loving kindness as its only meaning. It means covenant loyalty. It means, it means presence. And it's a way of speaking of God that belies the situation in which he finds himself. 
the hesed of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant fidelity of the Lord never ceases, even though my experience says it ceased in my life. Mm -hmm. So, okay, God's mercies never come to an end. The next key, is it the next one I want? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. his mercies, rachamim. Mm-hmm. Um, this, as you two both know, is a Hebrew word that comes from the word for womb, mm-hmm. and is often compared to the love of a mother for a child. It's visceral. It's in the blood. It's um, it's embracive and forgiving and whole making. And so, um, so God's love never ceases. God's mercies never end. Mm-hmm. He's saying from his tradition, and in fact, then he's now. He's now cheerleading himself on their new every morning. I I have to say, as a spirituality, I love these verses, despite what I've said about how (laughs) that's where we all go. Um, I love them because they they suggest in the middle of suffering that their surprises are possible. Mm -hmm. In the middle of everyday life, surprises are possible. Mm -hmm. They're new every morning. So every day you can get up. I don't know if, the, if this strong man ever gets up off of the ground, but you, you can hope, you can have hope. Okay, and then um, finally, um, they're new every morning and great is your faithfulness. And we can make our other point again when we refer to this, that the church has him from Lamentations, mm-hmm. and that is, great is your faithfulness. Mm-hmm. The, your mercies are new every morning. We don't sing anything else. We've got that. <laughs> yeah, right. But it isn't just because life is going well and you have a new car or a new house or a new job right. or a new anything. It's in the middle of awfulness mm-hmm. that this character clings to faithfulness of God out of what's already his portion that's the next line. Yeah. The Lord is my portion. So I think that he's saying this against his whole experience right mm. now. I think he's drawing on his memory, on his past hope, his past life, and it's now coming to bear to help him. That's really fascinating because, I, um, you know, when we sing the, the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, usually, at least what I have in my mind is, wow, I've, I'm really blessed. I've got so much good in my life. <laughs> but this poem, where, where, the, where the verse is taken from, it's talking about God's chesed, God's covenant faithfulness when it seems like God's covenant's been broken, and mm-hmm. God's compassion when it seems like God's been uncompassionate, and mm-hmm. faithfulness when, when it seems like faithful, faithfulness has been broken. So it's like mm-hmm. the the total opposite of the of the speaker's experience. Mm-hmm. They're voicing as an expression of some sort of longing and hope and faith that there could be a surprise, yeah. something new yes. in the morning. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I I think there's other factors here too. I think you described that beautifully. And um, I, I'd say first of all that in our churches we seem to think this is. We sing these kinds of things and pray these kinds of things exactly out of abundance. Mm-hmm. And this is not abundance. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the opposite of abundance. And so it's when the, the, his faith is tested. But in the ancient world, the issue isn't whether you believe in God or you're an agnostic so much as it is, which God do I follow? Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all this, he's following the God who has led him to where he is. Mm-hmm. So, um, it- so to say the Lord is my portion is to make a claim on your whole life, I think. Mm-hmm. To say God is a portion, you might have more to say about this than I do, but to say it's my heritage, my legacy, mm. it's my present 
it's part of my present reality. It's my life somehow. So there are uh, a couple other sort of key uh, thematic ideas in this section that have to do with sort of a, um, I don't know, a spiritual response to mm-hmm. the, the suffering that the, that the speaker is experiencing. And it's in terms of um, waiting for the Lord and seeking the Lord. Yep. And I, I wonder what either of you, but especially you, Kathleen, think about those terms as sort of ways of talking about a spiritual practice. Well, um, this is another part of the text that I like very much, and it reminds me of Psalm 130, mm. uh, where these same two Hebrew words occur, both meaning both mean two things a lot, wait and hope, mm. so that I like to make the claim that in this world of prayerful um, connection with God, to wait for something to unfold is to live in hope on the basis of the relationship. And I think that's exactly what's going on here, where he says, it's good to wait for the Lord. Uh, it's good to wait quietly for the Lord. It's good, you know, he goes on about all this, to sit alone in silence, you're in solitude. Um, it's good to have your mouth in the dust. Well, I mean, I think he's the person who's saying, there is goodness in this suffering. I don't really see it, but I trust it. Mm. Or I want to, tr- I'm going to say, I want to trust it. Yeah, I'm slightly jaded now because, so I wrote my dissertation on having anger at God in the Psalms. And one of the yeah. one of the ways that, um, or the way that that happens is through implicit expression. But one of the interesting things is this word um, damam, to be silent, shows up in some of these Psalms that address oh. anger. So it's, I almost wonder if there's another layer here of kind of a double-voiced moment where it is good to sit quietly because if I were to open my mouth, there'd be stuff that's going (laughs) out that I wouldn't want to do to say to the So So great. That's that's one of the things I hear in there, but um, I could be wrong. I haven't studied this text. (laughs) My own own pet theory here is that in that particular section here, um, this might be an example of where the form is leading the the author in a new direction because it's the section where you have to have three lines that start with the letter tet. Huh. And there's like five words of biblical right. Hebrew that start with tet and, and tov is one of them. So it's like, right. oh gosh, now I got to think of three good things. Yeah. Uh, well, it's good to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, right. and, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's good to suffer when you're young yeah, is what right, he's saying. Right. Yeah. You know, Better than man. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Like I said, slightly jaded, but... <laughs> I actually don't think it's a jadedness at all. I think it's a, a perception of human experience in its multifaceted form. Yeah. Now, I think that he's angry at God becomes clear later when he starts to explain why he's, okay, the Lord, he, he's clinging to this in verse, can I keep going? I don't sure, want to yeah, 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 yeah. give another question. Um, the Lord will not reject forever. Okay, now verse 32, God causes grief. Okay, and we'll have compassion. You've got this huge, for modern readers, a huge conflict here. Mm-hmm. God's beating me. I mean, I don't want this God. Mm-hmm. I don't want the abusing, disciplining, angry father mm-hmm. that he's got here. Mm-hmm. This is this is the, you use the language of abusive. This is the abusive God who's going to beat you up and then is going to be nice to you. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But my my answer or my response to this arises from trauma and disaster theory. When people have 
been devastated as the presumed audience of this book has been devastated. They need meaning. They need to restore lost meaning, even wrong meaning, even inadequate interpretation. They have to interpret. So as long as you, as soon as you have a building on fire and people come rushing out, what happened? What happened? Why did this happen to us? And we might look for human causes, but then people start thinking theologically. Why did mm -hmm. my building burn down? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. And so at least in Jeremiah, I make the argument, and now I do everywhere, that the fire and brimstone God is a temporary theological stay against confusion to um, quote somewhat liber liberally um, Frost, Charles Frost's comment about poetry. It's a temporary stay <laughs> against confusion. <laughs> so if it's just a temporary stay, it's a way to make sense mm. in the moment mm. and somehow to, to survive. And I think that all the way through so many passages of the Old Testament, yeah. I think that that theology should cause problems for mm -hmm. us. And I think that there is an explanation for it. No biblical text, even in the New Testament, gives us a thorough, complete, totalizing interpretation of who God is. Mm -hmm. It's all human stammering <laughs> to say the unsayable. <laughs> and so to me, a preacher should challenge this. Mm. Well, and I, I, I really, I really, this is one of the reasons I've loved learning more about trauma theory as it relates to the Hebrew Bible, because we use the word trauma and in everyday parlance, we kind of throw it out around like, wow, that was a really right. traumatic experience with true diagnosable trauma. You are stuck. You are, your, your physical body is stuck in that moment of trauma and it cannot move past it. So that's why right. what you said is so important. Any meaning will do to get you started moving forward. It doesn't mean you stay in that meaning, but you just, you have to start moving. And so it's like, this is what we're seeing here is just a beginning towards moving. Well, uh, of course, I, I want to stand up and cheer when I hear you say that, because that's, that's I think, a terribly important insight for preachers yeah. and pastoral caregivers, people who've lost a child. What did I do? Was it because I, is it because I, who knows? And I think it's a mistake to try to talk people out of such a thing mm -hmm. too quickly. Mm -hmm. But then life can't flourish if you get stuck there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If your narrative can't expand mm -hmm. to some better inclusion of what's happened to yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is really um, bridging us into our discussion about how preachers might pick up a text like this mm -hmm. and use it in a sermon. And, you know, uh, it, I think it's relevant what we've been talking about uh, related to giving words to people who are experiencing suffering. And, and in our pastoral experience, we know how difficult it is, how delicate those moments are where you're trying to find something to say to somebody who's been experiencing something traumatic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every time you step up to the pulpit, you're preaching to people who have experienced traumatic things. And so that level of, of uh, care and delicacy should go into every sermon. Mm -hmm. But especially in taking up a text like this, I, I wonder uh, what more we can say about how preachers might use a text like this 
to address their congregation in a way that helps them get moving on those first steps towards healing that doesn't just say, you know, don't worry about it. God's good. Everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And take that as the message of this text. We have to broaden it out into the context. But how might preachers do that in a sort of practical way? Here, here's what I think. I think you've just said it pretty well to set up the framework. That is, if you just take this as another, everything's going to be okay. You're not, you're not preaching the word of God, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. to your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that what we can, what we can do with this text is see, yes, toward the end of COVID, we can see some new beginning happening. And these can be our words in so many ways, mm-hmm. but only, I mean, we've said this a couple of times already, only when it acknowledges the actual suffering mm-hmm. and the, the communities, some of our churches don't want to even hear about this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, this could be a kind of courageous step, but all the losses of this year mm-hmm. and all the chaos and all um, are not going to affect everybody in the community the same way, but as a people, we are deeply affected. Mm-hmm. And so it's a text. It's in in many ways, it's a text for now. Mm-hmm. And it to if I had to preach it, and I don't preach very often, I have to tell you that I haven't preached in years since I retired from Columbia Seminary, but I, because it's too hard. But what I do think, <laughs> um, what I do think is that the language of this text offers a spirituality in the middle of suffering. Mm-hmm. And that we've got to talk about the suffering and find ways to say, not everybody here suffered the same way, but some of you have. Okay. And then talk about the reliance on the resources of the text itself. Mm-hmm. It's a resource in our treasure chest. Mm-hmm. We have these texts that show us how people in the past have prayed into the experience and started to move maybe out of it. Mm. And it and I, I guess I would want to encourage people to go back to their own experiences of God's presence in their life before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what makes them believe something? Mm. And if it's only and if, if it doesn't involve some human experience of the faithfulness of God or the love of God or the presence of God, then it's just an intellectual enterprise. And saying this is not going to change anything. Mm. It's in fact, if we want to keep pushing this, um, maybe I will preach about it. (laughs) If uh, if we want to keep pushing it, isn't it not the heart of Christian tradition and the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus to say that in suffering, there is, out of suffering comes new life. Not in the suffering itself, but out of it comes new life, comes new hope, and that um, participating in the suffering and knowing you've participated in it really is a a kind of spiritual opening in our individual hearts. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that, that could take you know, several weeks of preparation to talk about that. But it's really saying to me what I think the Hebrew, the people in the Hebrew Bible have, and when that is a holistic understanding mm-hmm. of life in the world with God that so much of us have shut down. 
I'm so interested in human inner experiences of loss and of and of recovery and a, a spiritual orientation toward life that asks us to take seriously our own experiences mm -hmm. that really honors them the way I think this book does mm -hmm. for suffering. But I mean also for goodness, it really honors our experience and doesn't make us leap into mental abstractions yeah. that gloss everything over for me. Yeah. And it's so great that there are resources for that in the Bible that we've received. I mean, that's yes. <laughs> that yes. in itself, there's a little miracle in that. Uh, Rachel, do you do you have a particular angle that you were thinking about as you thought about this text? I have too many, and and yeah. it's, I have several from even just our notes today. But you know, I'm obviously I'm thinking in terms of where we are with COVID, and in terms to I think for starters of how so many places are going through this differently, depending on what their experience was. So I just love Kathleen. You talked about the process of recovery. And I, I love that phrase because we, we talk about the process of grief, but the process of recovery. Um, and I'm, I'm picturing, you know, this is for June 27th. So we're in the dog days of summer. People are at the cabin right. or wherever it might be. So the folks who are going to be in your church are, are going to be ones who've probably, you know, borne some weight of the congregation this past year if you're worshiping in person. And so they might be some folks who need to talk about this process of recovery who need to talk about the ways that God allows voices to take center stage in Lamentations, even angry voices, even despairing voices. God just listens to them. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much here. This, this idea of this being a book of survival in a world of collapsed meaning. I mean, we might not be on totally collapsed meaning, but that, that meaning is hanging by threads right now for us politically, for us spiritually, mm -hmm. for us in so many different ways. Um, I loved this moment where we talked about in the middle of suffering, surprises are still possible. I mean, that's just, you could get, you could make so much hay out of that in a sermon about encouraging your folks to, in the midst of your suffering, whatever it might be, COVID related or not, what surprises are you allowing the possibility to be there when you wake up in the morning. Um, so to, I think to kind of sum this all up, I see this, this possible sermon as an invitation um, in one of these different directions, inviting your folks into this, this moment um, of addressing their suffering of whatever that might be, and that these are different angles you could use to get at that. Tim, what, what are you coming up with? Well, I, I really didn't have much coming into this conversation, but I've, I've really gotten so much out of it. Mm. And I felt like the thread for me uh, had to do with the way that the form works together mm. here and how the particular section that we're looking at from the lectionary relates to the, the rest of the book. What this does is give us some language to start, to take the first steps in moving towards recovery and that it doesn't say everything that we need to say about God, but it gives us <laughs> mm -hmm. something, sort of a, mm -hmm. yeah. a baseline to, to start from. Yeah. And uh, I loved, Kathleen, that you started your reading by backing up to, you know, I, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And I think mm -hmm. there is a seed of a sermon in there of um, what's your therefore? Yeah. What, what, what is the, what do you call to mind that produces a therefore? Oh of hope oh. that you might have. Oh, fabulous. I like that. And, and you yeah. know, that's that's not going to give you everything that you need for the long haul, but that's going to give you, like the, the poet here has, 
a starting point, yes. a baseline of, you know, God keeps covenant, God is faithful, and um, God's, God's goodness is going to outlast the suffering that, I, that we're experiencing right now. And so my response is, uh, you know, I can, I can start with that. I can wait on God through that. And uh, I, I find that this whole text has, even though it's um, so focused on the experience of, of suffering and trauma, there's a future orientation to it all that it's, it's um, saying this is, this is the reality of what we're experiencing now, but there's also a future out there that mm -hmm. has possibilities that we can't yet envision. And right. we can wait. We can wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I love what you just did. I love the question. That would that's just so great. I'm wondering too if um if we can ask people not just to know what they're starting with, but to know what their own experience mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. been mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. fidelity. And then you can add the fact the form back to the form. This is lament form calling on God, yelling at God, asking God for help demanding attention from God and that the assumption is God is there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Right. Well, this is wonderful. I uh, thank you so much for being here, Kathleen and, and bringing all of this wisdom. This was just a delightful conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you. And good luck with uh, your, all the things going on with you. And I think I have to get a hold of your dissertation <laughs> and, Tim, every good thing, every blessing through the suffering that is ahead for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So folks, if you appreciated what you heard today, we would very much appreciate it if you would head on over to our website and leave us a comment at firstreadingpodcast.com. If you didn't appreciate what you heard today, we'd still love to hear from you. Let us know <laughs> how we can improve. And again, that's firstreadingpodcast.com. You can also check us out on Facebook or maybe bring us along to your text study group and have a talk about what Lamentations might be preaching in your community. First Reading is sponsored in part by a grant from Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. Trinity, forming leaders for Christ Church at work in the world. Thanks, Trinity at Capital. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for some extra music behind the reading, and thanks to you all for listening. Have a great week.